hello again. Um, so today's reading is from Revelation chapter 13, uh, and you can follow along in the handout. The dragon stood on the shores of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had been given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain for the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast, who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the beast, the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Thanks, Beth. You'll find an outline uh, opposite the passage as it's printed. Conspiracy theories have a potential to scare us, don't they? The idea that somewhere behind these almost normal everyday events of life, there's, there's a power, there's a hidden hand somehow directing it as a conspiracy that's going to wreck your life. 
whether it's aliens and UFOs landing in Boswell in the United States, but all covered up by the CIA, or the moon landing in 1969 being a, a, a hoax, just fake news, somebody did it in a studio, to COVID-19 being a chemical weapon released by the Chinese against the rest of the world or by the US against China, or the COVID vaccine actually spreading the disease across the world, or somewhere embedded in the vaccine is a 5G uh, chip that's going to track you for the rest of your life. You scared? I've got a friend who rings me about once every 12 months for the last 20 years or so. And every time he rings me, he tells me about his latest conspiracy theory. Sometimes it's the Americans, sometimes it's a shadowy group of billionaires that are pulling the strings on the world economy. Sometimes it's the Antichrist and how to recognise him coming out from Tibet. And every one of his conspiracy theories are truly scary. Like if he's right, and they have just enough plausibility to think maybe he might be right, it would make life pretty difficult. And if I offer some counter evidence, but what about this? He just tells me that shows how clever the conspirators are because it's actually evidence for the conspiracy, not against it. That's the beauty of conspiracy theories. There's no counter evidence that actually can knock them down. But what are you supposed to do? Am I supposed to take on the whole US military machine with my karate chops? Supposed to out every Chinese agent that I think might be an agent? Or just sit here and freak out? Like, what am I supposed to do if there are conspiracies? Well, Revelation 13, the passage we're looking at today, is about a conspiracy. A conspiracy that's global in scale, sinister in motive, that has powerful players behind the front. And potentially, it's very scary. Now, if you were with us last week, um, we looked at Revelation chapter 12. I know it was on Zoom, so we're going to sort of... I'm going to pretend you weren't there. Just tell you a little bit about what happens in Revelation 12. John has this dramatic vision of a pregnant woman and there's a dragon praying over her, waiting for the baby to be born so it can devour the baby. But when it's born, it's snatched up to heaven before the dragon uh, can devour it. And then there's a war in heaven between uh, the dragon and his angels and Michael and his angels, and the dragon loses and is thrown out to heaven, out of heaven. And the explanation is given in verses 9 to 12. The great dragon that was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, that we're told who the dragon is, it's Satan who leads the whole world astray. He's hurled to earth. And we're told that the accuser of our brothers and sisters, that is the Satan, the accuser, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. That is, he can no longer accuse Christians. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. Through the death of Jesus, Christians are forgiven and justified. So his accusations are like, well, Teflon. It just bounces off. They can't do a thing. And by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, you who dwell there. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. That is, Satan has now been thrown to earth to do his dastardly deeds. And he's furious. He's furious because he knows he's lost and his time is short. He's like a little kid throwing a temper tantrum. That's all he's got, temper, to throw around. But where on earth? He's waging war against Christians, those who belong to God. But how does he make war on Christians? 
And what would you recognise as Satan's attacks on you? Poltergeists and vampires? Possession, possessing people, somehow getting hold of them? How would you engage in spiritual warfare? How would you fight Satan? Would you go and get an AK-47 or would you do exorcisms? Well, that's the background to Revelation 13. In Revelation 13, the dragon, Satan, brings forth two beasts onto the earth, one from the sea, one from the land. Beast one, we're told, comes out of the sea, that unruly, tumultuous part of the world. He's got ten horns, and on those ten horns are ten crowns, and he's got seven heads with seven blasphemous blasphemous names on them. And he's like a leopard, and he's like a bear, and he's like a lion. Very strange-looking beast. They're uh, scary, um, ferocious animals that, that it's like. But what is it like? Well, let's think for a minute. Ten horns and seven heads, so if you were here for Revelation 12 last week, that's actually the same as the dragon has. This isn't the dragon, but it's very much like the dragon. It, it embodies the dragon. He's like a leopard, a bear, a lion, which sounds like, well, it might to you, it might not to you, to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel sees in his visions four great beasts, animals come out of the sea. The first is like a lion, second like a bear, the third like a leopard. Is that familiar? The fourth wasn't like anything, but it had ten horns. And Daniel is given the interpretation, the four beasts are four kings who will rise from the earth. That is, it represents human kingdoms, empires, kings with great power, military and political power. And the beast that, that John sees in, Daniel, uh, in Revelation 13 is sort of like those four beasts all wrapped up into one, all crossed. So it's just one huge, scary beast. And he's given authority and power by the dragon, a, a power and authority over the whole world. And we're also told he's had this fatal wound that's been healed. He's been butchered, but he's now alive again. What does that sound like if you've read Revelation? That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? The lamb who was butchered but is now alive again. He's a fake Christ. That's who this beast is. And what does he do? Well, he's given authority over all peoples for 42 months, for every, every tribe and nation across the world. 42 months, if you remember from earlier in Revelation, is this cut-off period, three and a half years, not a full period, but a cut-off period, the period between Jesus' death and resurrection and his second coming. And all the world worships the beast. They don't just submit, but they bow to him in worship. And he appears indomitable, unassailable, except the only people who don't worship him are those marked, those belonging to God. And he blasphemes, blasphemies pour from his mouth. Not, not foul language, but blasphemies claiming to be God. And in verse 7, he wages war against the people of God. And succeeds. Well, what is this beast? I take it it's not literal. A beast from the sea. He's not saying go down to Cottesloe and just wait there for a beast to come out of the water. It's symbolic. Symbolic of raw political and military power. Totalitarian government. Governments are appointed by God. But so often they misuse and abuse that power. They become tools of Satan. In worshipping the beast, people are unwittingly worshipping Satan. 
And human history is littered with incarnations of this beast. Rome, uh, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Hitler, Idi Amin, Pol Pot, the, the list just goes on and on. And Satan's purpose in sending this beast, in giving it power, is to war against God's people, to use his coercive power of the state, a conspiracy against them, a frightening conspiracy. But there's a second beast, and the second beast is quite different. We're told it's like a lamb, except it's got a couple of little horns. And a lamb is one of the most cuddly, un- unfrightening things you come across, isn't it? You see a lamb out in the field, you just want to go and put your arms around it and frolic with it. It's, it's nice. But it speaks with the voice of the dragon, of Satan. Underneath, it's satanic. And what does he do? Well, he teams up with the first beast, with B1, an agent to convince people to worship B1 by using deceit, not force, but deceit. You see that in verse 14. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Uses deception, the deception of signs, of miracles, verse 13. Performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. He's he's like Elijah in the Old Testament who called down fire onto the sacrifice on Mount Carmel. Reproducing the miracles that God does through his own prophets. But it's all deception. The image, the idol of beast one, he causes it to come alive. So people worship the image, worship the statue in this idolatry, in this religion. It's deception enforced by coercion. If you worship the image, you get the mark of the beast on you. And unless you've got the mark of the beast, you can't trade. You can't sell your goods. You can't buy in the marketplace. Economic sanctions are imposed on you. It's not the raw power of B1, but sneaky, deceptive power of idolatry and false religion. And I hope these beasts are starting to make sense for you now. John has a picture painted for him. He paints it for us of the tools of Satan, of state power and false religion, teaming up to crush God's people, to suppress them and deceive them. And that understanding is reinforced by the rest of the book of Revelation, because the dragon, B1 and B2, don't disappear at chapter 13. They they keep coming up. So, for example, in chapter 16, verse 13, John sees three impure spirits that look like frogs. They come from the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, that's B1, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's B2. B2 is identified as the false prophet who claims to speak for God but leads people astray into false religion. Or in chapter 17, angel said to me, I'll explain to you the mystery of the woman. He sees a woman riding the beast, B1. Uh, The beast that has seven heads and ten horns. Remember that beast? B1. And we're told that the seven heads are seven hills. And to anybody in first century uh, Mediterranean world, that would have immediately rung bells with you. Why? Because Rome is built on seven hills. They're still there today. You go to Rome, you'll find the seven hills. The seven hills are almost the mark of the city of Rome and therefore of the Roman Empire with all its military power and muscle. But notice, too, that there's a sort of parody of the Trinity. The dragon is like God the Father, 
behind everything, pulling the strings, exerting his power. But he does it through B1, who's a parody of Jesus, the son. He usurps Christ's position, being worshipped by every tribe and nation of, of the world. But he's opposed to Christ. He's an antichrist. Anti, in, in the Bible, antichrist means two things. It means opposed to Christ, against Christ, but also means a, 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 an a alternative to Christ, another Christ. And B2 is like the Holy Spirit who does signs and wonders and seals people with a mark like the Holy Spirit has sealed God's people as belonging to him. It's a sick, evil parody of the true God. And then we come to the mark of the beast, this 666, famous, cryptic, all sorts of things that have uh, been suggested to explain the 666. I was alive when bank card, the first credit cards in Australia were issued, and you can see the symbol of bank card in the top right of that. Can you see three sixes in it? Yeah, it, it was hailed as the mark of the beast, the Antichrist. If you got a bank card, you were joining the forces of, of, of the Antichrist. Soon after that, when uh, barcodes came out, people thought that maybe barcodes are the Antichrist because some of them have got 666 in them. Um, and the initial scanners for barcodes by IBM were model number 3666. Your antenna go up, don't they, when you hear things like that? Now, many have assumed that what's happening here is it's what's called gematria, where you use letters for numbers. So in, in the, the, the script, in the writing of the Mediterranean world at the time, they didn't have numerals like we do, one, two, three, four, five. Instead, they used letters to communicate numbers when you wanted to, to, to have numbers, when you were doing your arithmetic. And, and you can see there, so if you wanted to work out the number of Tim, it would be three uh, plus 10 uh, plus 40, 53. That's who I am, I'm 53. And some people say, well, 666 must be like that. Uh, it's interesting that... Uh, we've dug up graffiti recently. You know, like we used to, I don't know whether you do it anymore, carve a heart into a tree and you write your initials and somebody else's initials and people have got to work out who it is you're talking about. Well, somebody has actually left a bit of graffiti that says, I love 545. And you're supposed to go there and work out, is, is that me or is it not me? By this sort of thing. Is that what's happening? The most popular suggestion is that this is about Nero. Nero was the Roman emperor in the early 60s. He was certainly opposed to Christians. He blamed Christians for the fire in Rome. He used them as human torches to light his garden at some stage. And so he sort of fits the bill as to this conspiracy. And it's true that if you take Nero in Greek and translate it into Hebrew and add a title and misspell it, you can get 666. But you can do the same thing with Hitler and Stalin and even Tim Thorburn. You can get the 666. And so many people look for some future malevolent person that will arise that when you do the maths in Hebrew or Greek or Latin or whatever language you feel like, you could come up with 666 and you're supposed to recognise him. But I don't think that's how it's working. Have a look at verse 18. This calls for wisdom, not ingenuity. And more literally it says... Anyone who has insight, who's got nous, can work it out. It's a human number. That is, he doesn't need to tell you what the number is. He does. He tells you it's 666. But you ought to be able to work it out because it's the number that represents humans and human power. And what's that number biblically? Well, seven represents God. God in his perfection and completeness. 
Humans are like God, but not God. And so six becomes the number that represents humanity. Either humanity in their right place, or humanity who wants to be God but fails, that falls short and is merely six, not seven. And to have it three times, 666, is to intensify that. And it's a parody, again, I think, of the Trinity. I don't think we're supposed to try and work out names and see if they can calculate to 666. But instead to recognise that these beasts, although merely human, are claiming to be God, but they're not. And their number shows who they really are by nature. They're merely human. Well, how do we make sense of B1 and B2, the then and the now. At the time John was writing, it would have been pretty clear to all the people who read it what he was talking about. He was writing after Nero, who called himself the saviour of the world, had burnt Christians to light his gardens. He's writing almost certainly in the time of Domitian, who called himself Lord and God. And, uh, and started a systematic war against Christians and insisted on being worshipped as God. And at that time, the Roman Empire seemed unassailable. Its military power was unparalleled. Its economic wealth was unprecedented. It had the capacity to control your life and crush every opposition. It was simply irresistible. And the imperial cult of emperor worship, the, the second beast, the, the false prophet, forced all people to offer incense to Caesar as God. And in some periods, the penalty for not doing it was death. So you didn't have to replace your other gods, Jupiter and Mars and Diana and Saturn. You just had to add to them the worship of the emperor, the Caesar, to ensure social cohesion. But Christians, well, we only have one Lord. We only have one saviour. And most Christians refused, and many were executed. They were seen as a threat to the state. They were seen as traitors to the state. Enormous pressure was put on them. Let me read to you an account of the martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp was a Christian leader in Smyrna, modern-day Turkey, um, and he was uh, martyred in about the year 155. The proconsul, that's the Roman official, asked him whether he was Polycarp. On hearing he was... He tried to persuade him to apostatise, that is, to deny Christ, saying, have a respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, by the luck, by the godness of Caesar. Repent and say, down with the atheists. Christians were called atheists because they didn't have any idols. They didn't have any gods they bowed down to like that. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium and jested towards them and said, down with the atheists. That is, he, he turned it on its head. <laughs> um, uh, the proconsul said, swear, reproach Christ and I'll set you free. Polycarp said, 86 years have I served him and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I'll throw, them, uh, throw you to them if you don't repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It's unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. Well, if you despise the animals, I'll have you burned. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and, is, and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. It's stirring, isn't it? Could I do it? I, I don't know. I hope and pray so. That was Polycarp. 
But as you heard what the proconsul said to him, it must have been incredibly tempting for Christians to cave into the pressure. To say, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's just a few words, swear to Caesar. Just light a bit of incense. Get a certificate to prove I've done it. I can go back and I can keep worshipping and, and, and following Jesus. But that's compromise. That is to give in to the conspiracy. That is to be destroyed by Satan. And if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, the same beasts are at work in our world today, aren't they? Often in tandem, B1 and B2, in the Taliban and ISIS, North Korea, the cult of Jim, uh, Kim Jong-il. John is shown what is behind the political and religious realities of his day. And it's a conspiracy, orchestrated by Satan himself. It's not merely politics and economics. Now, you won't get that insight by going to lectures at UWA, will you? But we will from God's word. We do from John. So what do we need to know? Well, we need to know uh, two things about Satan and his puppets. The first is that Satan is defeated and desperate. Yes, he's active. He's, he's raging. His activity is real in the world around us. But recognise it for what it is. It's the death throes of a mortally wounded foe. He's mad at God. He's mad at us. But don't be terrified of him. He's been thrown out of heaven. Yes, he can chop your arm off. Yes, he can chop your neck off. But he can't accuse us. He can't destroy us. He can't send us to hell. He can't really harm us in the end. Secondly, Satan is unmasked as operating in our world through B1 and B2, through beasts who use oppression and deception, who use terror and error, who use tyranny and trickery, who use bullying and befuddling. And that's all he's got. He hasn't got anything else. He uses totalitarian regimes to hammer Christians. And you don't have to look very far in the world to see that happening today. In China, the government has turned against Christians in most parts. Reports are coming out regularly of church buildings being demolished, of pastors and other leaders being arrested and disappearing. North Korea. It's hard to estimate, but... The, the people who are there on the ground estimate that more than 30% of the Christians in North Korea are either in prison or have disappeared. And false religion. False religion to deceive. Even using miracles. Statues that cry milk. Huskers who straighten legs. Jesus himself warned us. He said false messiahs, false prophets will appear, perform signs and wonders. To deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. Recognise them. I've told you everything ahead of time. Don't believe something because there's miracles. That's no sign that it's from God. Be alert. Be warned. And often those two things go together. Totalitarian regimes and false religion. In the Taliban, in, in Sudan, if you followed what's happening there over the last 20 years or so. And so John says, recognise it for what it is. It is spiritual warfare. It's not just politics and economics. It has the stench of Satan shaping and energising it. But how do you fight? How do you fight spiritual warfare? See, some Christians read chapter 12 about there being a war in heaven and they say, I want to be part of that war. 
Let's start naming territorial spirits and let's get angels on our side so we can fight and, and, and battle in the spiritual realm. Others want to defeat Satan by waging war with the first beast. Yeah, let's get some guns, form an army, create a revolution, control the politics of our country so we remain in power. But listen to what John says. Verse 10. What does this call for? This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. That's what it calls for. Just patient endurance. Stickability. Loyalty to Jesus. That's what it takes. Satan's agenda is to destroy us by breaking our loyalty to Jesus, our trust in him, our confidence in his victory. And he terrifies us by the threat of jail and execution. And he deceives us by distorting and replacing the gospel of Jesus. So what do you do? How do you fight Satan? Well, don't be terrified. Don't be deceived. Just stand firm. Exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 6, sorry. Our struggle's not against flesh and blood. It's not against governments. It's not really against B1 and B2. It's against the rulers, the authorities, the powers in this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil. That is against Satan. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to take to stand your ground. Now, after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. So it's exactly the same. All, all I need to do is stand firm. And resign yourself to some temporary pain. Beginning of verse 10. If anyone's to go into captivity, into captivity they go. If anyone's to be killed with the sword, they'll be killed with the sword. Yeah, but that might be what happens to us. Well, you can't stop it. Just let it be. So I think I've worked out what to say to my friend when he rings me with his latest conspiracy theory. You see, he could be right. There might be a conspiracy. And what if he is right? Well... It's sort of actually okay, isn't it? Yeah, if he's right, maybe life will get a bit more difficult. Maybe I won't be as rich. Maybe I'll suffer a little bit of physical pain. I I might even get killed. I I might need to bear some shame. Just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean they're not out to get you. But the final outcome is sure. Satan can't destroy me. Conspiracies can't destroy me. They're real, some of them. But even if the conspiracy theories are true, it doesn't actually affect how I live. If I'm going to go to jail, I'll go to jail. If I'm going to get killed, I'm going to get killed. But they can't harm me. In the West, B1 and B2 are rising after centuries of slumbering. We've had this false sense of comfort, security and entitlement. But loyalty to Jesus is increasingly at odds with the political correctness of our time. Deceit is rife. The world says to you, you're God. You determine your own identity. And coercion is starting to move from shaming to jailing. And what does John say to us? What does God say to us? Endure. If they go to jail, you go to jail. If you get deplatformed, you get deplatformed. Just endure. Yes, conspiracies are scary. But we've already won. Back in chapter 12, Satan has been overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of his faithful witnesses. It's sort of like we're playing a game of football and it's three quarters time 
and we're winning by 35 goals. Okay, we, we've won. Jesus has won it for us. And we've got a quarter to go. What, what are we going to do? Well, just kick a few more goals, that's all. Just, just remain faithful to Jesus in your testimony and kick a few more goals so that the end result, the end score is even better. But the, the result is not in doubt. The game has already been decided by Jesus. So just stick with him. Be loyal to him. For goodness sake, don't change sides at that point. That would be daft, wouldn't it? I'm going to pray, and then we've got a few minutes for questions if you'd like to ask something. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for revealing the conspiracies that rise around us. Thank you for showing us what they are, the tools of Satan. But we thank you too that in your son you've already won. And we have nothing really, ultimately, to fear. Please give us that confidence to stand. And having done everything, to stand. Amen. Okay, any questions or comments? You're going to let me off easy, are you? Okay, I'll hand back to Luan and I'll hang around for a bit afterwards. Ah, sorry, I didn't see. Do you have any suggestions for people who are enduring suffering? Suggestions for people who are enduring suffering? Yeah, thank you. That's a really good question. Um, uh, I feel like I, I speak from um, ignorance because I haven't, very, I haven't suffered much at all. Uh, and so um, uh, 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 I think what John says is um, it might be painful, it might be difficult, but it will be worth it. So endure. Endurance, I think, um, and sometimes our personality helps with that. Some of us are just very stoic um, and and unfazed by things, um, but most of us aren't. Pain is pain. Um, I think reading the, the stories of Christians who have suffered incredibly, I think it's their confidence in Jesus and his victory that keeps them going in the darkest hours. Um, often what happens is that the, the powers that are trying to coerce them into giving up Christianity will use deceit as like the, the second beast to try and move them from that confidence in Jesus Tell them that what they believe is stupid and wrong and, and try and undermine it and replace it with other things. Um, and uh, I know some, some Christians who have been in that situation, what they've found the most helpful thing is that they've already memorised uh, parts of the Bible that keep reassuring them of the reality. And that has been incredibly helpful and powerful for them and used by God's Spirit to help them. So... I, I'm not sure I can say anything more than that helpfully. Thank you. Yeah. Alistair? So if a Christian knows that, um, you know, what what they say doesn't necessarily reflect what they believe. So, for example, like Polycarp, he could have just, you know, done, gone through the motions, but still, you know, in his heart, remained a Christian. Like, is there anything wrong with doing that? Like, giving in on an outward level, but but you're, you're actually saying true to Jesus on an individual. Yeah. Jesus says you can't do it, doesn't he? 
So uh, lots of places. Mark 8, if anyone is ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation, I will be ashamed of him when I come with my angels. Now, I'm not saying that if you do it, there can be no forgiveness. But I'm saying you're stepping away from Jesus and his mercy and salvation to you in that moment. It's a compromise that is truly compromising. Um, And, uh, yeah, please don't do it because you think, it's all right, I'll be forgiven. You're moving in a direction that is away from the mercy of God and the victory of God. So don't do it, I think is, is, is what I'd say. Um, if you want to sort of see what happens when people do it, uh, in the early church, it, it happened quite a lot. So a persecution would break out for maybe a couple of years. Some Christians get arrested and killed. Some would cave in. And then when the, when the persecution uh, relaxed again, they'd come back to church and say, hi, welcome me. And the church had a lot of trouble trying to work out what do you do with that? Because they have denied our Lord. They haven't stood with us when we went through persecution. They've abandoned us as well as abandoning Jesus. It caused all sorts of problems. The, the, the repercussions we actually still feel in our churches in ways that you're probably not aware of today. Um, if you, I can tell you the story later if you want it. Um, but it, it really is... Uh, uh, you put yourself in a very difficult situation and you put your fellow Christians in a, 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 a bind. Jeremy. Um, so quickly, would you say that the two beasts are actual spiritual forces that kind of get manifested in religion and in governments, or do you think that they themselves are governments and religion? Oh, they are governments and false religions. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm going to finish and hand back to the wire. Thank you.